the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Good afternoon. It's a couple minutes after 4. You're listening to the Tim DeMoss Show and WFIL. Thanks for tuning in. Kind of cloudy evening ahead. May get a couple of showers. 38 the low. Rain early tomorrow on the cloudy side. The balance of tomorrow. Maybe a little sun too. 47 the high. Mix of clouds and sun. A high of 46 for Sunday. Sixers beat Miami last night. 125-108. Shake Milton. 31 points. They're at Memphis tomorrow night at 8. Flyers are home this evening against Pittsburgh at 7. A lot of football this weekend as well. Got the Rams and Green Bay at 425. Baltimore and Buffalo at 815. That's tomorrow. Then Sunday, Cleveland and KC play at 3.05 in Tampa Bay and New Orleans at a 6.40 Sunday evening. Victoria, how you doing? I'm doing well. I have that Friday feeling. That's it. Well, it's our famous <laughs> Friday show. And uh, we have a special guest in a second uh, going to be joining us. His name is H. Beecher Hicks III. He's president and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music. We're talking about this partly in conjunction with MLK Jr. Day on Monday. But also a good friend of ours is going to join us later in the program, Dave Spadaro. He's an Eagles insider. You go way back, right? Yes, I do. We used to work together when I was at the Eagles from 2016 to 2017. I love that. So keep uh, keep an ear out for that. We'll be having him join us. But before any more time goes by, let's keep our program rolling right away as we bring aboard uh, President and CEO H. Beecher Hicks III uh, from the National Museum of African American Music in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. How you doing, sir? Hey, Tim. How are you? Great. Great to make your acquaintance. Congratulations on this big endeavor finally coming to fruition. Thank you very much. We are we are ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, folks just tuning in, Tim DeMoss Show on WFIL in Philadelphia, and joining us, President and CEO H. Beecher Hicks III and the National Museum of African American Music, opening up on the 18th on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. What a day. And it's been in the, the making for, for a long time, right? It has been. It has been. So more than 20 years. So... Uh, it's taken us a while to get here, and um, we're excited. We're finally here. Yeah, share some of the the vision, you know, for for especially to stick with the vision for that long and to not get de- you know de- deterred from seeing it through. What's the the backstory to the to the uh, National Museum of African American Music? Sure. Well, there were a, a couple of business leaders in Nashville who hatched the idea to create a museum that would highlight initially the uh, contributions that African Americans have made to the development of Nashville from a uh, sports standpoint, uh, fine arts, uh, civil rights. Uh, you know, Nashville has a, a ri- as well as music, uh, has a rich uh, African-American heritage. And as the project continued to evolve, it became clearer and clearer that really the emphasis should be on music. It matched the city's branding, and it was something that is, uh, music is something that everybody in Nashville just kind of lives yeah. Uh, in a way, I think that's a little different than many other cities. And so it made sense to pivot in that direction. In addition to that, we looked around the country and we discovered that there was no museum in the nation that really focused on, on um, music in this way. Interesting. Most museums are 
focused on a label, an artist, or a genre. But we took the opportunity to really set the music in a historical context and look through the American history and determine what forms of music were emerging at a particular point in time and then tell that particular story. So that that's what makes the museum unique. Well, in telling the story, as you're talking, I'm thinking that must be uh, interesting to, to think about the ideas that were percolating, how to present the information so as people go through the museum, they can actually see it in a way that that uh, that tells a story, or or is it is it d- different pockets and different wings? How do you how, describe the layout a little bit? How how it's presented? Yeah, sure. So so it it was a challenge. I mean, you know, we were fortunate to be able to get some of the best minds in the country focused on music to help us. Uh, so we got a battery of PhDs and scholars from around the country who are experts at various forms of music and time periods in American history to consult with us on putting a storyline together. And they helped us to think about uh, the the biggest sort of buckets of time where music changed and was influenced by what was going on in the nation. And so what we realized as a result of that was uh, kind of the first type of music that really emerges is religious forms of music, and those would be slave songs, field hollers, and Negro spirituals. Mm. And then... Out of that experience emerges uh, gospel music is is kind of the next big wave in religious music. And then a a separate bucket, uh, as the Great Migration began to get started, you have a second bucket of music, which is the blues began to emerge. And in its many forms, uh, the blues went from a rural form of music, and as the Great Migration expanded, it became an urban form of music. And then out of that, as... We went from uh, kind of the blues and, and began to get uh, more sophisticated in urban centers. Uh, you had the emergence of jazz as a particular art form with influences not only from uh, France and Europe, but also from Africa. And now in this urban setting, you've got a completely new form of music now known as jazz that emerges. And then, you know, that was maybe in the, in the 50s or, or in the early 60s. And then by the time you begin to experience the civil rights movement, uh, music took a turn and began to uh, look at uh, all of the history of America. And what emerged was uh, rock and roll and R&B, and then uh, derivative genres from that as well, soul, funk, disco, techno, uh, electronica, uh, go-go music, all come in that period of time. And then as you begin to get into the 1970s, you start to experiencing urban renewal, uh, the Bronx is burning, and the beginning of the war on drugs, you have the emergence of hip-hop, an entirely new form of music that really went all the way back to Africa and came all the way through all of the other predecessor forms of music to create something entirely new. And so those were really the big buckets of music that the ethnomusicologists were telling us that we should consider. So we went through that American timeline to look at those buckets of music explore the stories that we need to tell to help people understand you know, how music evolved in this country. And from there, we pulled the artist out that can best help us tell that story. 
H. Beecher Hicks III is our guest. He's president and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music, which opens up in downtown Nashville this coming Monday, the 18th. As you're talking there, too, it's it's exciting. I found myself like thinking, man, I, I love music. I'm a longtime uh, DJ, weddings and parties, and have played all the genres you're talking about almost, uh, not the Negro spirituals, sure, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but all of those things. I'm like, man, because then there's that whole connecting the dots, it sounds like you're describing there, and the historical part of it not just literally here's the songs here's the music here's the style but how did the the, the, the what's going on in the culture in, of the day how is that inter, go, going back and forth with it too so that is exactly right and in fact we we try to avoid so connecting the dots is a big part of it and so we actually try to make that explicit um, and so we don't shy away from doing that i mean we recognize that genre is a necessary thing it's how we consume music. It's how music is sold to us. Yeah. But it really isn't the way that it's created, and it's really not the way it's lived. You know, we just have a different type of music that we like for a period in our life or for a period of our day, and we just listen to it. You know, we may or may not know exactly what it's called. We just, we just like a particular artist, or we're just, you know, vibing to a particular type of music in a particular environment that we're in. And what we realize through our permanent exhibit, which is called Rivers of Rhythm, is that, in fact, music does work an awful lot like a river. And, in fact, the streams and the tributaries that lead to that river. Uh, it's all the same stuff. It's all water that's in those, those bodies. But what we don't know is exactly where a particular molecule of water is going to wind up next. It just kind of moves and it flows and it works together. So there are an awful lot of dots to connect and that's what we really try to do in the museum. So we hope that there'll be a bunch of aha moments for folks mm. uh, and that uh, folks who thought that they were, you know, only fans of the blues come to discover that there are particular artists that lean heavily on the blues in hip hop. Yeah. And so maybe they'd be willing to explore uh, some hip hop that has some heavy blues influence to it. Sure. Uh, and so that's the kind of experience that we expect will happen in the museum. I know that I've been surprised. Some of the uh, the program I do each day is, is very varied. We're actually a Christian station here in Philly, but the program that we do mm. is all kinds of things. So we'll have pastors on. I understand your dad was a pastor, right? Sure. Um, but yeah. then, uh, uh, right. So then other times we'll, we'll have just someone like uh, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs is on talking about work and he was giving grants away. Yeah. Like, right. So all kinds of different things. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, I know I've had mus musicians on um, from Motown era from the 70s, Dionne Warwick, and, and the, the people they tell you who influenced them, it surprises you. You think, I thought you just kind of like that one style of music. And it turns out that it really does cut across uh, a lot of. Uh, you know, whites who you would not expect were influenced by black or vice versa. It's not that way at all yep. a lot of the time. Absolutely. And, and you know, and you, you certainly got, you know, a, a bevy of, of artists there in Philadelphia who were significant, significant in American music. And one of the things that we do, for example, is one of the places that Patti LaBelle is featured from Philadelphia's own Patti LaBelle yeah. is featured in our museum is in our Wade in the Water Gallery. And Wade in the Water focuses principally on religious forms of music, but we talk a little bit about Patti LaBelle and her influences and where that came from. And so you kind of look up and you see Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin in a place where maybe you wouldn't have expected. And that's exactly the point. And in fact, we have a, an exhibit or a, a digital interactive exhibit in the museum uh, that is called Rivers of Rhythm, 
Then we have a companion, I like to call it the baby version of Rivers of Rhythm. It's called Roots and Streams. And so these are two interactive exhibits in the museum that do exactly what you're saying. They connect the dots. And sometimes they go to strange places, places you didn't expect they would go. But that's the beauty and the amazing thing about American music is that it's not linear. It, it, it sort of flows in really, you know, sometimes crazy directions. But that's what makes it so cool, and that, that's what makes it something that we can all enjoy and share. H. Beecher Hicks III, President and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music, on the, with us today on the Tim DeMoss Show. Very brief break. Keep our program rolling here. Thanks for tuning in. WFIL. You're listening to a podcast of the Tim DeMoss Show, heard weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. It's 4.15, the Tim DeMoss Show on WFIL. Dave Spadaro, Eagles Insider, joining us in a little bit. But first, we keep our conversation with H. Beecher Hicks III going. He's the president and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music. It's been 20 years in the making. Opens up this coming Monday, downtown Nashville. Uh, of course, uh, some, some folks may want to make a road trip, but that's not as easy to do right now. But maybe they can plan for the future. And uh, there's still other ways that folks can be a part of it, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I think people can join us next week uh, on Monday. So uh, they can do it virtually. So we are going to have our ribbon cutting. It will be virtual and it will be live streamed on Facebook and on YouTube. And then uh, tickets are actually on sale today on our website, okay. which is blackmusicmuseum.com. The museum will open to the public on the 30th, so you can reserve your tickets right now. And those who decide they maybe want to become a member and buy a membership, and maybe they can sneak into the museum a little bit early. But, you know, that's the best way to find out information about what's going on and and where we are. And and what we are going to do to make sure that folks are safe is we've got a time ticketing system, so people can buy tickets for a certain time on a certain day, okay. and then we can control the number of people who are in the museum at a particular point in time. As you were working on this project, I'm thinking also there's a certain amount you come to the table with that you've experienced in your lifetime, but there's, I'm sure, a lot that you were discovering as you're creating what's going to be unveiled on Monday. Oh, any, any, uh, how much did you know going in, and how much did you learn yourself before taking the wraps off, so to speak? <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, I didn't know an awful lot. I, you know, I am, I'm not, my background is not in museums and it's not really in music other than being a fan. And so, uh, I was able to, very fortunate to have smart people and good people around me. Uh, Dr. John Fleming is a noted, uh, museum director who, who lent himself to the project for the last eight years. Uh, we hired, uh, I mentioned the ethnomusicologists and the scholars who worked with us on the storyline. We got uh, Gallagher and Associates, one of the leading exhibit designers in the world, to help us out on the exhibit front. Uh, and then we, over time, we hired an expert staff of folks to help us out in, in marketing and in uh, the curatorial areas. And so we've got a, a staff of, of PhDs and curators on staff who we are really very proud to have as a part of our team. And so, you know, when you surround yourself with good people and you, and you listen then, you know, you have the opportunity to learn. So, you know, my ability to talk with you today is all because all those other people taught me something along the way. And, and uh, so I'm really grateful for them and their work and their sacrifice to get this done. Where do, and, and along those lines, too, uh, I'm just thinking that a lot of work, obviously, going into all of this. You personally investing all this time in it as well. What's your hope for people as they, uh, you know, consider coming and or whether it's in person one day or, or online? 
Yeah. Well, my hope is that they will discover in an unexpected place the com- common humanity that we all share. Uh, I think we're doing a little too much fighting with one another these days. <laughs> yeah. And I think that um, you know, coming to a museum like this might enable somebody to see and recognize that you know, the, the music that they love is also the music that somebody else loves. And that person may not look like them, may not talk like them, may not even speak the same language, may be decades older or decades younger. But through this music, there's something that we have in common. And that means that there's something that we can talk about. That means there's something we can share. Yeah. Uh, and if that's the case, then maybe we can get along a little bit better together. And, and that's what I really hope the museum will bring about as a sense of joy for people, as well as a sense of common humanity. I like that a lot. Uh, you know, and this is just a side note, maybe for your benefit, if it's of interest to you. Every radio format has, you know, you know does have its parameters. Um, I've worked in a lot of different kind of radio settings, but Christian radio primarily and in the music world it tends to be kind of like soccer mom music. And for all the years I've been doing this, I've been trying to push other styles of music saying like, you know, if God was a format, what would he be? Because people tend to think he'd just be like one kind of little thing. Like, yeah, I think if we get to heaven, there's going to yeah. be a lot of different people there. So let's maybe, so we play some hip hop, some rap, some rock. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and then also to your point, I would try to encourage listeners to say, look, if rap's not your thing, that's all right. But if I'm you, take some notes because maybe you know someone else who could benefit. Don't just think, oh, it's not right. my thing, right? So I like what you said about trying to help, you know, bridge those gaps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there are all kinds of examples of that through the museum. I used the Patti LaBelle example. Right. But, you know, we also have uh, – we also feature Kendrick Lamar in our Crossroads Gallery. Okay. And our Crossroads Gallery really tells the story of the great migration and the emergence of the blues. Love it. So somebody might say, well, wait a minute, Kendrick Lamar is a a pretty contemporary hip-hop artist. Why would you put him there? Well, you know, the fact is that he samples an awful lot of blues in his music. That's right. And so there's a lot of a similar type of of soul and heart and thoughtfulness in his music that is similar to what's in the blues. And so, you know, who knows? You know, somebody who is a Kendrick Lamar fan might find something that they enjoy in the blues and vice versa. So. That's the kind of experience I hope people will have in the museum. That's neat. You know, and as you're talking there, I remember growing up, I I took piano lessons for seven years, although I only really practiced hard for two years. But the two styles I love the most, (laughs) well, you know, blues and jazz, my two favorites by far. Um, And I mentioned mentioned earlier, your dad was a preacher, I believe, and you grew up in a church environment where music, I'm guessing, was fairly prevalent. What's your background on music as far as appreciating it and even, you know, being involved with a project like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so yes, I did grow up in the church. And so I I was fortunate that, you know, my my father was pretty forward looking. And so he, um, he actually encouraged everything from spirituals to hymns to classical to the most contemporary gospel in the church environment. And then at home, uh, you know, he and my mother would listen to all kinds of soul music and disco and and they were uh, supportive of my brother and, and I listening to to some funk music and yeah. some go-go music and hip-hop music. And so, 
you know, it was it was a bit of a, a mashup in our house, and we all enjoyed it and celebrated it, and it was a part of what sort of held us together as a family. You could always hear music playing. Yeah, it's such it's such a thing. I love that. I I've DJed for thirty years, and my sons have come with me on jobs. My daughter even, and yeah, it, it's fun watching your kids learn songs that you've played for years, and like, okay, this is a band called Steely Dan. This is a band called whatever. Right. From 20, you know, Hall and Oates from twenty five years ago. This is Marvin Gaye, and then they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> you've not heard this before. Well, right. I'm only twelve, Dad. So, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> so, but that that whole teaching thing is neat. There'll be lots of opportunities for that in the museum. I mean, I I, I think that you know I'm really looking forward to the day I see a grandmother and a grandson wandering through the museum and swapping stories. Oh, that's, so that's, a, that's the idea. That's a great picture. That's a great picture. It's a, it's yeah. a real pleasure to make your acquaintance. Thank you for taking time today. And Absolutely, we'll, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and congratulations again on the, on the museum coming together. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. H. Beecher Hicks III, President and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music. Website's blackmusicmuseum.com. It opens up this coming Monday. Monday, brief break, and Eagles Insider uh, Dave Spadaro will be joining us. It's Tim DeMoss Show and WFIL. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. It's 424 in the Tim DeMoss Show. A lot of clouds, 52 the high, 38 the low. A few showers possible tonight and or overnight. 47 the high tomorrow. Mix of clouds and sun for Sunday. High 46, Sixers 125-108 over Miami. Uh, they won last night with Jake Milton leading the way with 31 points. They're at Memphis tomorrow night at 8. Flyers home tonight against Pittsburgh at 7. And a lot of football this weekend. Rams and Green Bay at 425 tomorrow. Baltimore and Buffalo follow that at 815. Then for Sunday, Cleveland and KC play at 305. Tampa Bay and New Orleans at 640. 833-850-BABY, by the way, if you want to help out in our partnership with Preborn, 833-850-2229. We've had a lot of folks help out with that. You can also go to WFIL.com. January Sanctity of Human Life Month. We'd love to have you join hands with us in that endeavor. Back to the football sort of deal. Bring it on board now. The one and only Eagles insider, Dave Spadaro. Dave, how you doing? Tim, well, I'm, I'm sad because the Eagles aren't in the playoffs, of course. Um, so that's a bummer. Yes. But I'm really intrigued to see who the football team brings in to be the head coach. So all in all, you know, after, after a rough 2020 for everybody, I'm hoping for better things in 2021. Well, we want to tackle both of those things that you just said on said there. But before that, since you and I spoke last, we have a new producer of our fine program, somebody you actually know. Ooh. Sitting in studio okay. with me right now. Do you want to yep. say speak your name? Hey Dave, remember me from twenty sixteen? Carson's rookie year, <laughs> Victoria. Oh yeah, hey, Victoria. <laughs> it's been a while, how are Dave. You? <laughs> Good, yeah, how are you? Congratulations. Glad you're doing well. Yeah. I'm doing fine, thanks. I'm doing fine. Hanging in there. I'm glad to hear from you. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, the minute he said you, you were, he, you're, you're, he was bringing you on, I was really excited. You're working with a great man, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. He'll teach you everything you didn't learn with the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> well, we're, you said that, not me. We're glad to have Victoria <laughs> on board. She joined us uh, right after Thanksgiving, and so uh, she's been great so far. And, and uh, one of the reasons, actually, we wanted to have her on board because of her Philly roots and her time with the right. Eagles and all that. Yeah. So you uh, do a great job. Well, we're glad to have her. Glad you guys can connect here. And uh, you touched on something there. Of course, there's uh, maybe before we get into the Eagles for a quick second, 
just this, how, how big a fan are you in general of football beyond the Eagles? Because obviously you live and breathe Eagles stuff. But Yeah, uh, I mean, I love football. I, I, I love, I've always grown up in sports. I don't know a whole lot else, honestly. And uh, sports to me represents what the world should be. Everybody works together. You check your ego. You rely on the person next to you. You trust the person next to you. You teach the person next to you. And you all uh, are in it for the common goal of winning and then you know you give it your best effort if you don't win you try to figure out ways why it didn't work and how you can do it better and if you don't win you you accept it gracefully but to me sports has always been the key part of my life and um, as I played it growing up as I've you know gotten into my adult life and and forever worked for the Philadelphia Eagles you know people always say well, what's your best part of the job my best part of the job is honestly when we have a game and everybody in the organization is doing their part and it comes off and it's at the end of the day, you go, wow, that was a great product. So, like, when I get to a stadium back in the old days when there were fans allowed, yeah. and I get there at 9 o'clock in the morning for a 1 o'clock game, and you see it fill up by the thousands, it's just you realize how many people it takes to put on a great show. It's not just about the players and the coaches. That's what everybody sees. But there are a whole lot of people who are working behind the scenes. And so uh, sports is, is a huge part of my life, and the NFL is my favorite sport. So I watch all the playoff games and, and study it all and admire those teams that are playing at this time of the year because it's really a spectacular thrill. Yeah, Dave Spadaro, Eagles Insider with us. You can follow him on Twitter at Eagles uh, Eagles Insider. Um, uh, the podcast, of course, I want to chat with you about that too. But And you being a local guy for many years with the team for many years, reporting on the team and providing the content that the fans are eager to gobble up uh this past year what was your job like we talked before the season got going last uh spring i guess it was may and uh how did how did things play out for you over the course of the year and and you know you had that streak i think you said you've been to every game since the strike back in 87 yeah did that streak continue yeah. then i guess no no so, so i've been to every single eagles game home and away since 1987 uh that streak was broken when the eagles opened the regular season at washington um, and just like everybody else in the world, you know, life was upended and professional challenges that you have to learn new ways to get your job done. And so there was there was very limited access. Obviously, I was at the Novacare complex, but only in a very small part of the building, never in the locker room. So it's tough for the insider to be the insider when you're not <laughs> really on the inside. But, you know, we yeah. made do, and um, we put together a lot of good content, unfortunately, the Eagles were a really bad football team this year, and uh, the, the story that we told was not a very exciting one. So you live with that, and you, I mean, right now we're in that transition stage, as Jeffrey Lurie said, and we'll see how the team responds. But definitely a difficult year for everyone. So I'm not going to sit here and cry because everybody in the world, everybody listening, felt the same thing. Yeah. So you look back at this year. What's your what's your bird's eye view of uh, of 2020 and and where do you, you know what's your what's your what are your thoughts on the what's around the corner perhaps? Yeah, well, look, I mean, Tim, I, nobody expected four eleven and one when the team put together its roster, and so everybody shares in the responsibility of having a, a lousy season. The personnel has not been great. Um, the injury situation was disastrous. The coaching, I mean, I just didn't see any improvement from the offense. The quarterback situation regressed tremendously. Um, so it was, it was just a bad, bad year. And it was, what was so weird about it? And you, you can kind of feel it at the time. Eagles open the season at Washington up 17, nothing. 
17 points, three of the first four possessions. Carson's flinging it. Jalen Rager has a 55-yard touchdown catch. Goddard and Ertz both have touchdowns, looking great. Defense dominating. Then Carson throws an interception, and everything changed at that moment. And the Eagles never recovered. And that what was so special, was so stunning about it. They just it was lifeless. It was a lack of aggressiveness. They didn't maintain momentum. They didn't have anybody stand up and make a big stop on defense. And even when they clawed back and led the NFC East going into the bye week, you just kind of felt, well, yeah, maybe they can win the division, but how far is this team really going to go? So it's just, to me right now, a team that's got some good older talent, a couple of young pieces, some major questions at quarterback. And, of course, we've got to find out who Jeffrey Lurie picks to be the new head coach. And I've been around long enough, Tim, to know that these these kinds of transitions – you know, the really good organizations come out of them quickly, and the Eagles did that when they transitioned out of Chip Kelly. They had the so-so year with Carson as the rookie quarterback and Doug as the rookie head coach in 2016, and they win the Super Bowl the next year. That is the mark of a great organization. We'll see how the Eagles handle this one. In a situation where I think really there's probably more questions about the personnel, about the fit, about how the Eagles are going to get back to the top of the NFC. I think the positive is that they're not chasing the greatest division in the NFL. So I think the Eagles have an opportunity to turn around pretty quickly. But they really have to find a coach and fill the coaching staff with great leaders, great teachers. And then they've got to make sure that they deal in the draft and hit a lot of home runs. Eagles insider Dave Spadera, our guest. Quick break. We'll keep our conversation rolling on our famous Friday show. It's the Tim DeMoss Show on AM560, WFIL.com and on the WFIL app. Live and local, it's the Tim DeMoss Show, weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Our podcast continues. It's 435 on the Tim DeMoss Show. Eagles insider Dave Spadaro, our guest today on our famous Friday show. Of course, the Eagles have had um, some pretty good head coaches in, under the Jeffrey Lurie regime. Uh, Ray Rhodes, Andy Reid, Chip Kelly, Doug Peterson, all having various levels of success. And as the Eagles move on now to think about, you know, who's next, I guess fans could feel at least pretty decently that the, that the coaches have had that success. And in, uh, of course, Peterson's case won the Super Bowl. What, what are your thoughts on the head coaching search that's about to happen here? You look at, you look at like similarities, and, and it's very difficult to find them, other than each of those four coaches – started their NFL head coaching experience in Philadelphia. And Ray was a defensive coach. Andy, Chip, Doug, offensive-minded coaches, generally on the younger side, although Chip wasn't particularly young. He was an experienced coach, having been at uh, Oregon. I don't know where the Eagles are going to go. I mean, I think ideally they would love to find the next Andy Reid, somebody that they can really establish roots with, that they can grow with who's got great leadership skills, great organizational abilities, great vision. I think, obviously, for Jeffrey, having a top-five offense is vitally important. doesn't have to be an offensive coach. I think the Eagles are going to have a good choice of selections. I don't know how quickly this thing's going to get done because the playoff coaches haven't been interviewed. Right. So you kind of might be better served to wait until you have that break between the championship games and the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, I don't have a sense for where they're leaning. I know that they've canvassed, it seems, every available man who's got a good resume. 
So they really want to make sure that that's an exhaustive search. But they want somebody who's going to be uh, a strategic thinker, somebody who's going to take control of this organization. And, by the way, somebody who's going to be able to manage a quarterback situation that is very complicated right now. And as the old saying goes in the NFL, if you've got two quarterbacks, you don't have any. That's right. So That's right. How will this quarterback view Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts moving forward? And does that coincide and coordinate? And is that in sync with what, and I'm sure it will be, with what Jeffrey and Howie believe? Eagles insider Dave Spadaro, our guest, been with the team for many years. You've had a chance to know Ray Rhodes and uh, Andy Reid and Chip Kelly and uh, Doug Peterson, who's now, of course, uh, not with the team, and uh, Jim Schwartz as well, stepping down, the defensive coordinator. Uh, so you got to know them not only as coaches but as people. Share a bit about that, if you would, dig a little deeper, and also maybe where the you know things are headed for the Eagles in that, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, look, so a couple. So first of all, Ray Rhodes was a very aggressive, defensive-minded coach was able to tap into that Mike Holmgren coaching tree and bring in somebody like John Gruden, who at the time was a 31-year-old offensive whiz kid, to be the coordinator. Great move. Andy Reid came in with an exhaustive uh, book, prepared, um, was able to surround himself with some veteran experienced coaches. Rod Dauhauer was his original offensive coordinator. Jim Johnson, of course, his defensive coordinator. And Andy had impeccable leadership skills understood how the organization worked, worked very well with the organization, understood how the Philadelphia media works, right. which is critical. Former player, knows the mind of a football player, obviously a great fit. And the only crime of Andy Reid's tenure is that the Eagles did not win the Super Bowl, but clearly the most sustained success the Eagles have ever had. Right. Chip Kelly came in, offensive mind, thought he knew it all, uh, took the NFL by storm, had a good group of, of talented uh, Deshaun Jackson, Michael Vick, Sean McCoy, Jeremy Macklin, talented players that could execute his offense, Brent Selleck, but didn't have that counter move. Okay, so once the NFL caught on to his tempo, Chip couldn't bring forth that secondary move in the Eagles very quickly after that first year and then a 9-3 start in 2014. Uh, you know, awful football team and a a bad guy and a bad coach who did not work well with anybody who divided the organization it was a bad experience to have chip kelly as the head coach doug came in and knew how to look the eagles made a great great series of moves to get up and get carson wentz so the the pairing of doug and carson really elevated the organization brought everyone together and carson's talent and his work ethic it just it just transformed everything okay right so uh eagles win a super bowl no higher no higher goal make the playoffs the last two years things start to fall apart no young talent replenishing all of these injuries just everybody shares the responsibility of it um but doug doug's real strength was a he knew how to surround himself with quality veteran coaches frank reich jim schwartz ran the defense Doug had a lot of charisma. He had a lot of daring do. Go go for it, guys. We're going to go for it on fourth and down. We, I believe in you. Go, 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 go. Players loved him. He backed off at the right time. Knew when to kick him, knew when to hug him. Um, obviously, 4-11-1 is a bad season. But but prior to that, like I think the, the similarity that I see, Tim, is that both Doug and Andy 
when you lose that first, when you have initial success and then you lose some of your valuable coaches. In the case of Andy Reid, you know, he, he lost some of his positional coaches. He lost Harbaugh. He lost Childress. He lost Rivera. Right. You know, he lost a bunch of coaches. Doug lost Frank Reich. He lost Filippo, et cetera. So, and didn't replace them adequately. And that, I think, contributes to the drop-off. So, look, somebody's got to come in here. They've got to be dynamic in their own way. They've got to be able to work with the organization. There's a huge number of media responsibilities, both internally and externally. Uh, you've got to deal with the modern-day NFL player. This roster is in transition. You know, this could be a very young roster when it's all set done for 2021. So you've got to have a great coaching staff assembled that is going to teach and uh, at the same time have a great vision for where the NFL is going and, and, and how to utilize the talent that is, that is in place. Um, so those are some of the things that I always look for in a head coach and yeah. workability, vision, leadership, resilience. Uh, and, and look, uh, in Andy Reid's case, stubborn as could be, um, <laughs> but also was able to change. Andy, when we see what he's doing in Kansas City, Andy Reid is one of the all-time great coaches in the history of this game for a reason. And uh, so that's the goal. That, you want to get another Andy Reid who's going to take it a step further, and in the case of four other visits, two steps further than where the Eagles were with Andy Reid as head coach. Eagles insider Dave Spadaro, kind enough to hang out with us today on our famous Friday show. Quick break, we'll wrap up our chat and see if we can also sneak in our Now That's Bunny segment. It's Tim DeMoss Show on WFIL. Thanks for hanging out today. Have a guest you'd like to hear on the Tim DeMoss Show on AM560 WFIL? Email D at WFIL.com. It's 445 on the Tim DeMoss Show. Eagles insider Dave Spadaro hanging out with us today on a famous Friday program. Uh, you do the Eagles insider podcast. Folks look up on Twitter and all that, but there's also, you do like a number of podcasts, right? What's the deal? Yeah, during the season, we put out three uh, podcasts. We put out the post game, which is our, we call our instant reaction. Then we put out one on Tuesday where we kind of set the scene as we transition into Friday's podcast, which is our tailgate edition, where we do everything from you know, our one-on-one with the quarterbacks. We have a, a segment called Eagles Fans with Cool Jobs. And just get everybody kind of ready for the weekend games. And then we also do a podcast, a daily podcast called Eagles Update, which is a two- or three-minute podcast daily during the season, twice a week during the off-season. Eagles Insider is generally once a week in the off-season. And we're just, you know, we're kind of on hold right now, waiting to see what the Eagles do at the head coaching spot. Yeah. When you do your work, by the way, I'm, I'm again getting back a little bit. It's in- interesting. Obviously, you've been with the team. I guess over a quarter century. It sounds it sounds like forever to yeah. say that, but that's what it's been. Local guy. It's a great story. Obviously, having grown up locally and gone to school locally, and been able to work and live here all these years. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, the difference between say writing a column where uh, where someone will uh, in the media will have an opinion woven throughout. And perhaps uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Rob Motti, with the Associated Press, his job is more to write what happened without injecting, per se, his personal opinion on things. Uh, how have you found your job to be over the years, just out of curiosity, with regard to yeah. that, that line, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, look, I mean, it's, it's everybody who knows that I'm an Eagles employee, so I don't worry about that. So I try to provide my unique perspective and be the message from the team to the fans. Okay. When the team goes poorly... It gets very sensitive in the Eagles' offices, so there's a different line that you make sure you don't cross. Because, look, we knew at four eleven and one that there were going to be some major changes the way the Eagles were playing. Yeah. Some of those games were ugly in 2020, 
you can't insult Eagle fans reading it, but you also can't go to the extremes that some independent media have, uh, and that 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 lead that leverage or not leverage that I guess that leniency that they have in, in terms of the width of their of their opinions. So yeah. it's a bit of a line. I'm used to it now, and and my goal is always to just make it a a worthwhile and interesting endeavor, an entertaining endeavor for Eagles fans to come take in the content that we provide, whether it's the podcast or it's video or pregame shows, postgame shows, anything that we write, any of the stories that we do, any of the, um, the shows that we put on video or podcasts or audio shows. We put out a tremendous amount of content. And, look, Eagles fans are going to be Eagles fans whether you win or lose, but you have to be straight with them as much as you can. And if the Eagles lose 45 to 20, it's not because the ball bounced the other team's way a few times. You have to be able to tell the accurate story. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that? I was, I was also thinking about just the, the sheer popularity of the Eagles over the time you've been there. Have you seen that just be a steady thing all these years? Have you seen a spike in it personally with the, with the, with the obviously the internet changed things a lot in terms of spreading the content and getting it out, but yeah. And, and so, and also the performance of the team, has a great deal to do with it. I can tell you in 2020, uh, the interest in the NFL was still extremely high, but significantly off from what we've seen because of COVID, presidential election, yeah. so many things that happened in our, in our country. Generally, though, it, it kind of rises and falls with the success of the team. And there's always going to be a large, large, large core audience, but you attract kind of the fringy fans when the team is doing well. And, um, you know, we saw certainly during the 2017 season throughout the Super Bowl, it was amazing, the audience, uh, the reach, not only from this country, but from throughout the world, uh, around the world, there was just a tremendous amount of interest. And then we went over to London that following year, and it was really eye-opening to meet all of these Eagles fans from around the world who – made the trip to London to get a glimpse of the Eagles, something that they hadn't done before. So sure. it really is, not to the extent of the beautiful game, but it is a global game, global sport. Yeah, and, you know, for folks, again, you can look up, even if you don't, maybe the best way is to look up your name, and then they can find all the things you're working on. Uh, Dave Spadaro, S-P-A-D-A-R-O, in case you're not familiar. Uh, I remember when we talked last time, one of, you know, one of the games this weekend coming up involves the Ravens whose head coach, John Harbaugh, of course, was a special teams coach for the Eagles for a while. And you shared a story last time, and I bring this up just so folks understand the, the work that you do to the level, um, you know, you walk the halls there, so you have firsthand knowledge of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, I mean, you have to go even further than that. And I remember you, you had a story about uh, linebacker James Darling and uh, Coach Harbaugh had pulled you aside at one point. You remember that story? <laughs> it was a great story. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we've actually... Um... In the lunch line or breakfast line at, at Novacare, he walks up to me and he says, "So, what do you? How much film have you watched on James Darling?" I said, "Well, I've seen a little bit." He said, "Have you seen every play?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, how 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 can you say that he'll make an immediate impact on our special teams?" And I was like, "Well, you know, John, that's a great point." He goes, "So what you're saying is, if he doesn't make a great impact as a rookie on special teams, then I've done a bad job coaching him." But maybe he's not ready to be a, a contributor on special teams as a rookie. It's unfair of you to say that. And he goes, that's basically why the media can paint a very inaccurate portrayal. And, Tim, the fact is, look, you watch, an, you watch a football game, 
and there's 22 players on the field. Right. You can not possibly tell me what all of those 11 one-on-one matchups, how they are um, impacting a play after watching that play just one or two times with a replay. Right. That's why coaches roll back each play three or four or five times. So it is very difficult. Like I, I really like. I don't ever during the draft process anymore say, "Hey, this guy's going to be a great player," unless I am sure that I've watched him, or I've heard from coaches or scouts, which is really where I get my most of my information. Right. Because they, that's their living. I think that they're the experts, and the media. You know, look, the fans need so much information. I get that part of it. They're feeding the beast, but it's not necessarily the most accurate information. Particularly, Tim, when you're evaluating college players coming to the NFL, they've played in a college environment with like-aged and like-experienced players. And then if you haven't seen every single bit of film on them, how can you possibly project them accurately or fairly into a world of grown men some of whom are, you know, 10 years older with 10 years of NFL experience in a much more complicated game, in a much more complicated scheme. But it's all part of the, it's all part of what, what fuels the NFL, the media hype, the fan interest, the fans feeling like they have a sense of really what's going on. But I can tell you the coaches generally don't pay attention to that stuff. And I learned the hard way with my encounter, uh, <laughs> having having that conversation with John Harbaugh, yeah. which is very educational for me. Darling had just been drafted, right? And I guess it was just part of your reporting. Yeah, I mean, Washington State, yeah. 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 yeah my, my report is, hey, hey, Eagles fans, James Darling, great draft pick, could, could be an, an immediate contributor on special teams. <laughs> Never thinking that the special teams coordinator would say, um, Spadaro, if he doesn't contribute on special teams as a rookie, is that my fault? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer for that. Yeah. You know, but, and what I think is is neat also is because, you know, you're trying to provide content for Eagles fans that's not just, uh, you know, walking a line and being balanced, reporting the news. But but you're trying to, you know, keep it positive but also truthful. Um, and I just think also not getting ahead of yourself maybe as a I, – I try not to when I do interviews in general. I try not to assume anything or project out too far. Because I don't know, like you said, on that 11 and 11 on the field, who knows what's going on? You can't break it all down as well as you might think. So to not to not think too highly of yourself, just kind of in a, in a humble way, but in a, in a strong way, present, here's what I see. Yes. You know what I mean? So. Yes, yeah, humble, humble, but confident. And, and right. look, that you're there because you're, you have a knowledge of the game and right. you have access to information and you have to take advantage of that access to information and. If you have a question, ask the experts. And that's part of the job that, that gives me uh, a great insight is that I, if I need more information, I can call a scout or I can call you know, a coach or I can call a DM, and they'll shoot me straight and tell me why and explain it to me. And, and so that's very helpful as well. Last two words, Carson, Jalen, or just Carson. Or just Jalen? No. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 re- I really don't. I really do not have a feel. People say to me all the time, "Are they going to trade Carson Wentz?" I'm like, "What's the deal? What are you offering?" Come on, Dave. We know you got the um, inside info. I, but I, but this but is just the three. Of us. I, I know how it is. <laughs> I think this. I, I think the Eagles. I think the Eagles approach this offseason with the idea that you know everything is on the table and that they are a franchise that has a lot of work to do and that they've got two valuable assets in Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts. And 
would they love to have look the ideal situation is that Carson comes back and he gets becomes that elite player to go along with that elite talent that we saw right years ago uh, but I, I I don't know what the new coach is going to feel I don't know what the structure will be I just will tell you again sometimes the word is in the NFL when you have two quarterbacks you don't have any so yeah. Eagles have a very difficult decision to make and it's critical to the long-term future of the organization that they get it right at the most important position in the game. And, and, and look, we saw enough of Jalen. I feel that I can say that I saw enough of Jalen Hurts to believe that he can be a very good quarterback in this league. And clearly Carson Wentz has already been a great quarterback in this league. A mysterious, rapid fall from grace, um, something that I've never seen in all my time watching the Eagles. Yeah. We'll see. One day at a time. Dave, it's great talking with you. Thanks for carving out some Thanks, time Dave, today. You yeah. Have a yeah, happy... Great, 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 great it was nice to hear from you again. Yeah. Great to hear from you. Are you, are you. Keep up the great work, guys. Anytime you want me, I'd love to jump on. Thank I really you, Dave. Are you, feet up, are you feet up with some snacks this weekend watching the ball games? <laughs> I do have some, some game-watching plans. So, okay, good. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing... I think there's some really great matchups. I, the the Seattle loss last weekend was pretty shocking. The Steelers loss yes. last weekend was pretty shocking. I I guess I'm going to tell you that I think Tampa Bay. I'll never count Tom Brady out. He is just remarkable. Yeah, it's a fun weekend. I love my my son and I'll be watching, and daughters will wander in and out of the room. But it's it's a fun thing to be able to just sit down and know you can watch a lot of ball games and watch the storyline on good teams. So. Yeah. 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 Good teams, good matchups, good football. Yeah. Well, enjoy. Thanks again, Dave. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to all. You too. Bye-bye. Eagles insider Dave Spadaro, kind enough to hang out with us. That was fun, Victoria. And now we have just enough time. Yes, it was fun, but I'm so excited for this pun segment. All right. Let's jump in. Not much time. All right. Did you hear about the guy who fell into an upholstery machine? No. Well, fortunately, he's fully recovered. I'll give you that one. A group of a group of chess enthusiasts were standing in the hotel lobby discussing their recent tournament victories, and after about an hour, the manager of the hotel came out and said, "You got to get out of here." They said, "Why?" Because he said, "I can't stand chess nuts boasting in an open foyer." Yeah, it's all right. I like that one. Stephanie texted in. A student said to her teacher, why is there a question mark on this periodic table? Teacher said that's the element of surprise. Thank you. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) I think uh, a chicken crossing the road is a beautiful thing, Victoria. Why is that? Truly poultry in motion. (laughs) That's a good one. My landlord said he needs to talk to me about how high our energy bill is since I have the thermostat up there. I told him, my door is always open. (laughs) And that'll do it for our fine pun segment. Victoria, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too, Tim. We'll turn things over next to Jim Max and Max 413 Ministries. He leads for next. Looking forward to doing the show again on Monday. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 to 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.